0: This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Where some see the allegations of voter fraud and a barrage of lawsuits in the weeks after the election as an assault on the foundations of democracy, others say it's political theater. With 2020 almost in the rearview mirror, what kind of an impact has Donald Trump had on the Republican Party and what influence could he still wield in Florida politics? Dick Batchelor is a former Democratic state lawmaker and founder of the Dick Batchelor Management Group. Uh, Dick, welcome back to you. Good morning. Happy New Year. Early. (laughs) We're also joined by Frank Torres. He's a Republican political analyst. Uh, Frank, thank you as well. Always good to be here. As we talk now, we're in the middle of the so-called interregnum. There's still a couple of weeks to go before the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. I wanted to just sound you both out on your reflections on what's happened since the election. Uh, Dick Batchelor, what's stood out for you about the month or so after November?
1: Uh, Absolute insanity. I mean, it was expected, a disappointment expected. All the litigation with the Rudy Giuliani trying to get in every court in the nation, about 30 counts, courts uh, either heard their uh, filing as to whether or not they had stand in the court and they were thrown out on every occasion as, uh, as uh, they were by the Supreme Court. Uh, but, you know, it, for them to basically try to overturn the results of the elections, if you look at the last... Um, lawsuit against Texas, our own own Attorney General, Ashley Moody, filed an amicus brief. What in the world if she has an interest in people voting in Texas? Why didn't she, you know, maybe yield to the Democrat demand, which doesn't exist, to have a recount in Florida in as much as we lost to Trump by 400,000 votes? Maybe that was a rigged election. Hmm. It's just uh, unfathomable. And, frankly, it's really— it's crass politics where the attorney general of the state of Florida joins with the other 13 attorney generals to file laws against states uh, to basically throw out the vote. And lastly, I will say, same goes for the 126 members of Congress that signed on to the amicus brief. Uh, they should be ashamed for themselves. Maybe they're proud of their footnote in history, but it's going to be a sordid footnote on how they try to take away their votes in a democracy.
0: Do you think this is going to have a lasting impact I mean, could it have some practical impact on the mechanics of presidential elections from here on out, Dick Batchelor?
1: There are some people who continue to question the Electoral College and whether or not it should be by popular vote, and that's a very difficult and uh, kind of arcane debate about that. I don't think that's going to change that, but I think the president set by the federal courts and the Supreme Court will give notice to any future Rudy Giuliani's, who might want to file basis claims to stay out of our court, because there is a president now. So the, to that extent, yes, yeah, there's presidents uh, on, the, uh, on the constitutional side, as to who has standing to challenge votes. So uh, to that point, I think the president's set, and I think it will uh, determine uh, the uh, the uh, the number of lawsuits that might be filed in the in the future. Mm-hmm.
0: Frank Torres what's been going through your mind over the last few weeks well
2: you know I think uh, what we've been seeing is a lot of theater uh, I think a lot of these uh, these lawmakers they understand that Trump voters are still voters and they're going to be voting in 2022 and they're gonna be voting in 2024 so there's a lot of uh, posturing a lot of I uh, what I believe in the back of the, their minds they know it's just symbolic rep- uh, support uh, that it's not that would have it would have taken an epic the legal uh, running of the gauntlet, unlike we've never seen to have this thing overturned. And I, I think they're just trying to, to, you know, put up a, uh, a strong face, uh, face and uh, put up a strong fight to move forward uh, from here. And I think, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting uh, 2021 uh, as we hopefully begin to emerge out of this pandemic to see how these lawmakers are going to react and uh, what other uh, stances and postures they'll take uh, under this new administration.
0: Do you think there's going to be some lasting change to how elections are run or even how candidates are decided in the end result at the presidential level?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the the, the Trump presidency, uh, depending on you know which way you view it, uh, certainly uh, brought a new perspective to the whole political system. I think voters are more quick to question the way things are done. And uh, I think they're more aggressive when it comes to, to voicing those uh, objections and and making those challenges. And I think, you know, you're going to start to, you're going to see that start to work its way up as well. You've gotten some members uh, of the house who, um, who aren't afraid to, uh, to, to, you know, throw out these conspiracies and, you know, voice their opinions. And yeah, I think it's just going to continue to get, uh, more amped up from here.
0: Mm -hmm. Dick, what do you think this portends for how Joe Biden will govern and what kinds of policies he may be able to shepherd through? It's not, really an auspicious start for a president to have the sitting president going you know, to question the election over and over again, and even uh, you know the, the members of the opposition party just be very slow to accept the, the result of an election.
1: Well, I, there was a movie in 1972 too, that Robert Redford called The Candidate. It's rather ecstatic. He gets elected to the U.S. Senate. No one thought he could win. He won. He turned to his chief of staff and said... What do I do now? Huh. Well, it's kind of like that. It's like you, the good news is you won, and the bad news is you won. But fortunately for this president-elect, Joe Biden, with forty-eight years of experience, him being in the United States Senate, chairing committees, been the vice president under Barack Obama for eight years, he comes with skill sets that are well, well developed. Number one, number two, he comes with the political currency that. Uh, another candidate like Elizabeth Warren would not have had, but his would not have had. So he comes with that political currency. Now he's going to have to earn a lot more of it because, as you alluded to, Mitch McConnell agreed that Electoral College has met and cast their votes, and there is indeed a President-elect Joe Biden. You've got some other members like the uh, Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, who will not utter those kind of words. So there's a hard road. has got a hard road to hoe. Now, I—, I Being optimistic, measured optimism, they will find some issues that they will will agree on, and then they'll set aside maybe for a period of time issues they don't agree on, and hopefully that will send a signal to the American public that, notwithstanding the very big divide in this country, only uh, you know you know seven eight million votes apart, uh, maybe send a signal that look we got this, we're back in control. Things are going to work out. There will be controversy of the adversary. the will be gnashing of the teeth. But there are some things that we can work on. But we won't spend all of our time just, you know, rolling grenades in the tent trying to destroy everything. Keep in mind, Mitch McConnell, after Barack Obama's was elected, said my, my goal is to be sure that man is not elected for a second term. Well, it doesn't work out so well for Mitch McConnell. Hmm. So I hope they don't go in with this attitude that, okay, we're going to make this as difficult for you as humanly possible. There's signs that it's already happening. I, I, I see it. Matt Gates and others, uh, the China troll. Now you've got all that going on. So they don't look like they're going to give them a fair shot. And I would hope, at least, the final note is that I would hope at least the leadership of the Republicans in the Senate, in the House, will at least find some common ground and demonstrate again to the to the voters and to the Republicans and the taxpayers. You know, we, we've got controversy, but we can get some things done. Let's see if that's uh, going to be a wish and you know.
0: 2021. Hmm. Uh, Frank Torres, if we could sort of drill down a little bit to the response of Florida lawmakers to this whole process of lawsuits being filed and dismissed, and then the electors confirming the votes finally for Joe Biden. I mean, Governor DeSantis, for example, was saying that, you know, kind of dodging on a question of should he call Joe Biden president-elect, and he hearkened back to the aftermath of 2016 when some Democrats were clearly unhappy with uh, Donald Trump's victory. Is that a fair comparison, do you think? And, and I wonder what your thoughts are in sort of seeing how this process has been viewed through the lens of Republicans in Florida?
2: Well, I don't think it's necessarily a fair process, but you've got to remember that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis will always have a a connection um, for better and for worse. You know, Donald Trump essentially got Ron DeSantis uh, past the primary. Nobody thought he was going to win with a tweet. And um, he came to Florida, and while a lot of other people were um, – Kind of shunning the president, Ron DeSantis campaigned with him, uh, with his complete campaign, you know, with his political future on the line. Heck, he did commercials where he's <laughs> talking to his children, reading mm. them the Art of the Deal, and building walls. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's a sense of loyalty there from the governor that isn't really going to go away. Uh, as for the rest of the GOP, you know, they 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 had a good year in Florida. They took back some seats in the House of Representatives. They maintain strong majorities in, in the state House and the state Senate because the Florida Democratic Party can't seem to do anything right. So, yeah, I think you're going to see a, a continued, you know, uh, this continued boldness uh, from Republicans uh, in Florida because they, they it, it simply worked for them last year. So we'll mm-hmm. see how it continues to shake out.
0: I wanted to ask too about that relationship between DeSantis and Trump. your point was, uh, DeSantis rolled the dice on Trump, so to speak. I mean, he really threw his lot in with the president. It worked for him, and that uh, the fruits of that have been. You've, you've seen that that close relationship play out with, um, you know, funding and the like, and and response to the coronavirus pandemic. He seemed to have the ear of the president. In some regards, do you see uh, what what kind of relationship do you see between the White House with under a new administration and the state of Florida I mean, given that this is a very popular state and obviously the, for things to work here, you do have to have a pretty good working relationship with whoever's in power but what do you think uh, the auspices are for what do you think um, that that relationship may look like under this new administration
2: you know i 'm not optimistic uh, I was really hoping to see um, the Biden administration, and I suppose there's still time, you know, pick up some people from Orlando to sort of, you know, uh, move along or ferry that relationship between the new administration and Florida forward. Now, that's not to say that some good things might not happen. Uh, heck, you had Rick Scott and Barack Obama share the same space for six years, and, you know, the, the recovery turned out to pretty, be pretty well, and some some decent things got done there. Um, good things can certainly come from moderation. And the, both parties sort of keep each, keep each other in check with the state working uh, on, that way on a federal level and vice versa. So, I mean, I'm not optimistic to get to begin, but I do believe that, uh, you know, that we shouldn't rule it out completely. And uh, we're going to see a return, more of a return to uh, normalcy, if that's what we're going to call it, uh, under the administration moving into 2021. And I think the big takeaway from 2021 for Joe Biden, Ron DeSantis, even here in Orlando with Buddy Dyer and Jerry Demings will be coronavirus recovery. I think that if these guys don't nail down this recovery and start to get things back to normal, then we're going to start to see a lot of people um, getting frustrated. And if the recovery does go well, and you know there is some sort of return to to the way things were next year for the holidays, where maybe you know we can you know be together for Thanksgiving and visit each other during Christmas, then I think uh, lawmakers for both sides and all levels will be able to take that as a win. So I think before we move on to any other, other sort of things, um everybody has to come together for coronavirus recovery. And as far as the other policies, I think anything working with the, you know, economic recovery coming out of this uh pandemic will also work in their favors. So they should be on the first page for this first year. We'll see if they can actually do it or not.
0: Mm. If you're just joining us, my guests, Frank Torres, Republican political analyst and Dick Batchelor, Democratic political analyst. We're talking about 2020, the year that was in politics and looking ahead to 2021. Uh, Dick Batchelor, back to you. Frank had a fairly bleak assessment of how the Democratic Party fared in Florida and their prospects. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, he said we um, the first page looks good, but I think the I think the dog donate the homework on this one <laughs> I think uh, DeSantis has already seen the overture which is wrong. Just common decency would indicate and protocol would indicate he is the president elect. You can refer to him as president elect. We did the same thing with Trump. No, after the election two thousand sixteen, we did not go crazy. We didn't have these rallies, we didn't raise two hundred million dollars for a defense fund. We accepted except that in two thousand uh, remember the concession by Al Gore uh, during that uh, uh, Bush for uh, uh, Bush B. Gore case. So mm-hmm. there's precedent for others doing it. They do it. Number one, number two, you don't have the relationship. And Frank is right. You've got a Republican U.S. Senator two of them. You've got a Republican governor who won't recognize the president. He's had a good relationship with Trump. He has no relationship with the incoming president. You should at least make some overtures as governor to president-elect and start that relationship. If you go back to the uh, Clinton administration, we ended up with the EPA administrator from Florida, secretary of HHS for Florida, um, the attorney general from Florida. You know, we had liaison, and we could deal with that administration and did very, very well under the administration. But you don't have that now. You know, the, the strongest person in Florida to Joe Biden is going to be former United States Senator Bill Nelson. Hmm. They're very personally close. He and Grace are very personally close, close with Joe and Jill. You better start cultivating some of those relationships. You, you might not want to, but you've got to have a relationship. And Denver lost Washington Schultz will, because she worked with him. She was chair of the national party. So you've got that. One final thing. You know, the Sanders came in and surprised the Hades out of me. I, I wrote an article for the Central uh, Florida 100 Orlando Sentinel and said, hey. I want to make him nervous, but he he did the right thing by pardoning the four mm-hmm. uh, on environmental policy. He did right. He did right by getting uh, people off the waiting list with people with disabilities. He got more funding. He and His wife uh, advocated more funding for t- abused children, human trafficking, opioids. I'm, I'm shocked. But now, and his popularity, by the way, was 60% in the polls, which is the highest of any governor in 10 years. But now, I guess, if you poll him now, he's at 40%. So does he want to keep latching on to Trump, who's no longer president, no longer has any influence? He just uh, – and he's, a, he's going back to being a barker, a mm-hmm. sideshow. So does he want to hold on to him? Does he want to protect the interests of the state of Florida and develop a relationship with the new president in the cabinet and the Congress? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the real test. If he wants to just hang on and be a lapdog to Trump, that is not to the benefit of the taxpayers in the state of Florida or the voters. And he needs to remind himself of that coming up.
0: Hmm. Frank Torres, that, that notion of uh, you know what President Trump does from here on out, and I guess his kind of remaking, reshaping of the Republican Party, what that means for Florida and, and, and nationally too. I mean, how much influence will he wield once he's out of the White House?
2: Well, I think that depends on what he decides to do. You know, in a couple of years, if he decides to run again, then I'm sure that influence is going to pick right back up. And if he doesn't, then you know he might pass the baton. He might pass the baton to Ivanka or, or Donna Jr. I mean, he's still going to have an awful lot of clout. And when you look at 2022, one thing that's been demonstrated is the midterm lag. Ever, George George W. Bush had it. Um, Barack Obama had it. Donald Trump had it. Mm-hmm. It is the The first two years after you start seeing a new administration, there's a lot of change that frightens people. The party in power tend to take some hits. And I think that's going to work to uh, Ron DeSantis and uh, Marco Rubio's favor. And, you know, and they're going to be in pretty good shape moving into those midterms. But, uh, yeah, I, to, to get back to your original question, I think Donald Trump's still still going to be the most influential person uh, in Republican politics uh, for some time to come. Uh, and we're going to have to see if he continues to be aggressive in the spotlight uh, or if he's just sort of face to the background and lets somebody else take over. Mm-hmm. I tell you, there's no, there's certainly no shortage of people. That's going to be reaching for uh, going to be going for that uh, that top spot if he does decide to uh, to call it a day.
0: Indeed, um, and I suppose you know whatever happens, he'll he'll have some influence probably in you know whether he lends his support or not to somebody who's campaigning at a state level or even for a, a, the governor's mansion. I, I can see that influence being wielded one way or the other.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And let me tell you, uh, this is this is a president that enjoyed the rally environment. I, the most fun he had on uh, the most fun he had during his presidency were, were, was throwing rallies mm-hmm. and meeting with supporters. So I think if he can still do that, uh, and if he can still draw, even though he's outside of the White House, um, for Ron DeSantis and and for you know Matt Gates, and I don't know if he'll do it for Rubio, but you know uh, some other people as well, then you know I think he'll continue to do that and continue to have influence, uh, certainly on the Republican side when it comes to a deciding election.
0: We've been taking a look back at the year in politics that was and looking ahead to 2021. We've been speaking with Dick Batchelor, former Democratic state lawmaker and founder of the Dick Bachelor Management Group. Dick, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm going to wait up very late in New year, Z, because I want to see 2021 come in and 2020 leave. <laughs> and uh, we've also been speaking with Frank Torres, Republican political analyst. Frank, very nice to have you back on the show as well. Thank you.
2: Always great to be here. It was a very exciting year. And let's let's get ready for 2021.
0: Still to come, a look back at the triumphs and tragedies of the year in space exploration, from the return to human spaceflight from U.S. soil to the collapse of the mighty Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Stay with us, that's right after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. From human space launches from Florida to ambitious robotic missions into our solar system, it has been a busy year for space news. For a look back at all the stories that happened up there, we're joined by WMFE space reporter Brendan Byrne and WKMG space reporter Emily Speck. Brendan and Emily, thanks for being here.
3: Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, let's start with the return to human launches. Emily, this was a story, the uh, return to human launches from Florida soil. This was a story more than a decade in the making, right?
3: Yeah, uh, we've been waiting for human launches from Florida Space Coast for almost nine years when it finally happened, you know, this August. It was definitely a historic moment. Mm
0: -hmm. Just walk us back through what it was like for yourself watching that rocket go up.
3: It was definitely surreal. Um, I know Brendan and I both started covering spaceflight around the same time. And even though growing up in Florida, we saw shuttle launches and that was just a regular thing and part of life. We had never covered a launch with people on it before in person, so you know I was at the press site at Kennedy Space Center, and to see Bob Banken and Doug Hurley and know that that Falcon Nine rocket taking off from Kennedy Space Center they were at the top of it was just it was really surreal and it was it was kind of it was kind of emotional. I know that you know everyone was cheering and clapping and it was very, very exciting, but it was also stressful you know um mm-hmm. you you can never forget that you know these are. Two men with families, their dads, they have young sons, and so much work has has gone into making that they making sure that they went to space safely and returned home safely.
0: Brendan, it's been a pretty miserable year for news in many ways, right? But it's nice to be the space reporter as well and report on one of the few bright spots this year, I think.
4: There really was, and I, and I think that um, you know we recognized it, you know, in our newsroom and uh, in, in Emily's newsroom as well, and I think NASA as a whole did you know, that that first launch in May was, you know, in, in the middle of a very uncertain year. So for all of us just to take, whether it was 10 seconds and counting down and watching, you know, those two launch um, from Kennedy Space Center, really, you know, you took your mind off of things and, and realized that, you know, there are still some really interesting things happening and some, some really good stories out there. So it was nice to to kind of step away and, and uh and, and cover something like that, something a little more inspirational, um, and, and monumental. And uh, you know, I, I it it was definitely different. Um, you know, Emily and I both we've had conversations, you know, offline talking to each other about how we're gonna cover this because, you know, this is as as Emily mentioned, our our first Human mission, and and, you know, I talked to some veteran space reporters and said, I don't know what advice to give you because it's going to be completely different uh, with you know nobody there. Um, There were very few people out at the press site, um, and even fewer people you know watching um, in person because of concerns over coronavirus. So yes, it was it was an inspirational story, but it was also um, kind of tainted by what was happening you know in the Mm -hmm. world.
0: So we did see one more human mission from Florida this year with the launch of Crew-1. Uh, Brendan, what does this mean for human spaceflight and for the International Space Station?
4: Well, this gives the International Space Station an increased capability to, to hold more astronauts, right? If you have more spacecraft docked to it, you have more ways to get off in case there's an emergency. Um, so we're seeing that now. You know, with the launch of Crew-1, that was four astronauts, three of them from NASA, one of them from JAXA um and there are so many people on board the international space station now conducting you know science and 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 uh keeping that vehicle flying that uh they actually ran out of bedrooms right <laughs> so so Mike Hopkins um did not have a bedroom <laughs> on the ISS so he's living in the in the crew dragon um and i think this is a capability that NASA has really wanted for a long time um to be able to have the ability to launch its own astronauts um from the US um, and to be able to staff up um, on its side. So there's there's the opportunity for so much more science to get accomplished on board the space station with more physical staff on the station. Um, it's just it's an all-around good thing uh, for NASA, and that's just with one of its partners, right? There's still Boeing to come online, so there is going to be another space vehicle and another chance to get more astronauts up into space. So if this year really was the year that the ISS was able to staff up and have more astronauts on board.
0: Emily, speaking of Boeing, what is next? The company has been struggling a little bit with some of the testing it's been doing this year with the Starliner spacecraft. So what's the latest?
3: Right. So um, what happened last year in, in December, it's been you know almost more than a year now since uh, Boeing attempted their orbital test flight with the Starliner spacecraft. There were no humans on board that. It was supposed to go to the space station and, and come back down, but um, due to a computer error, it ended up not meeting up with the space station. So they're going to repeat that test. And right now that's slated for March. Um, You know, that could change because it's space flight and and things do change, but they say that they are about 90% complete with all of the checkouts that they need to do to make, I think it's around 60 corrective measures that were, that were recommended, not, not necessarily like they had to do them, but they're kind of going above and beyond, they say, to make sure that this spacecraft is, is good to go. So that will be amazing once it launches. And again, there won't be astronauts on that, but it should clear the way for them to launch astronauts, hopefully next year. And then we'll have two American-made spacecraft that can transport astronauts to and from the International Space Station. That'll be huge.
0: Brendan, just back to the partnership with SpaceX and NASA, what comes next there? Well, we saw this
4: year um, the continuation of another partnership that NASA has with SpaceX, um, and that's its cargo resupply uh, partnership where, where SpaceX ships up supplies and science equipment up to the space station. Um, and we just saw the launch of an upgraded capsule um, for that, which was based on the design of the of the human capsule. Um, So right now there are two dragons attached to the International Space Station, a crew dragon and a cargo dragon, and that will continue. Um, NASA has um, more astronaut missions planned. Um, There's one coming up in the spring um, and another one in the fall, Crew 2 and Crew 3. So this partnership is, is going to continue, and it seems to be quite fruitful for for NASA and, uh, and SpaceX is um, kind of racking it in <laughs> with these contracts as well. So
0: Speaking of SpaceX, too, I'm sure you are both watching the uh, test launch, the most recent test launch of their Starship, that massive chrome plated rocket. Uh, Brandon, just kind of get us up to speed on what happened there.
4: Well, that was a test flight of, I believe it was their eighth prototype of um, this is their next big rocket, the Starship, right? They've got all sorts of plans for this, whether it be uh, landing cargo or humans on the moon to, for NASA to SpaceX's internal goal of, of using it to take humans to Mars. Um, and this was a test of, of certain aspects of the vehicle. Um, they launched the, we call it the, the chrome grain silo. <laughs> they launched it to an altitude of about uh, seven miles up It belly-flopped so they could test out the aerodynamic capabilities of the fins and then went from that horizontal back to vertical to try to land. And it was just an incredible-looking test. I know we we were all watching it, and it just seemed like there was an issue with one of the the Raptor engines, and and it wasn't able to land properly. But it was an all-around successful mission, according to SpaceX – and that program is just moving at such a quick pace. And that's just kind of the testament to how SpaceX does things, right? You know, blow things up, test things out, push them to the limit, and that's what drives um, their engineering. So I will not be surprised uh, to if we see a Starship flying uh, in the next few years on operational missions with the, uh, the pace that they are developing this system at.
0: And I guess the thing is they're kind of using technology that they've they've deployed for the use of their missions to and from the International Space Station, right, which is the ability to launch a rocket and then return the booster at now to a floating platform. we are seeing some of that kind of play out with this new shiny <laughs> machine that, that Elon Musk is developing.
3: Right. This is a completely reusable launch system. And, you know, to go from throwing away rocket parts. And, and now it's, it's weird if we don't see SpaceX land a booster, that's, that's an oddity. And it's, it's also very rare to see a new, a brand new rocket launch with SpaceX anymore, because, you know, with their last launch, they had, I think it was the seventh flight for that particular booster. And, and they want to, Eventually get it up to you know ten reuses and that's pretty cool. So yeah, they're definitely like reusability has always been a big part of SpaceX's you know core values and their business values because that drives down launch costs.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with WKMG space reporter Emily Speck and WMFE space reporter Brendan Byrne, taking a look back at the year in space. A busy year for robotic exploration. Um, uh, Emily Speck, NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission touched an asteroid and snagged up some dirt. Uh, Why are scientists so excited about getting their hands on some cosmic dust, as it were.
3: Yeah, well, this was uh, NASA's first asteroid sample that they've collected and and now they're going to bring it back home. But it's a really big deal because this particular asteroid called Bennu, it's a a near Earth asteroid. So it could one day in more than 100 years or so come pretty close to striking Earth. So that's one reason they want to learn about it. But the other reason is, you know, in the years to come, asteroid mining is going to be a huge business to get into if, if not already, you know, they wanted to collect this sample and see if there are organic molecules on it that they can turn into fuel or use for other resources. Um, So this sample, it's, it's a pretty big deal when they get it back. You know, I know they have a deal with the Japanese space agency to trade some of the sample that they just brought back, literally just landed a few weeks ago and um, bring that back and, and they'll be able to trade. So that's two asteroid samples and it's very exciting.
0: When you're talking about something this far out into deep space I mean would this kind of exploration these kind of maneuvers even have been possible without advances in robotics that we've seen just because it's so far away and you can't kind of do things in real time from from Earth?
3: Well decades ago I would say definitely not. You know this the spacecraft, OSIRIS-REx, it was orbiting an asteroid. It's the smallest body that a spacecraft has ever orbited. And the GPS on this was just, it was a navigational challenge from the beginning because, you know, they eventually they wanted to have about a 100, I think it was 150 feet range where they could get a sample. And once they got to Bennu, they realized this thing was covered in boulders and rocks, and that just wasn't going to happen. So the navigation on the spacecraft to zoom in to a much smaller spot and get that boop on the asteroid and suck up that sample it was it was pretty amazing to see and, and to think about it.
0: Brendan, NASA joined two other space programs and launching a mission to Mars this summer. Um, one of those is the Perseverance rover. Uh, what's next for that or what is ahead for NASA's Perseverance rover?
4: So Perseverance is en route to the red planet with a landing um, scheduled in February um, which will be uh, very exciting um, and it's got Pretty much, you can categorize its its mission into you know two different silos here. One is it's looking for you know signs of of ancient life on the surface. It's got a slew of of different pieces of equipment like a laser that's going to zap these rocks and look for certain uh, organic compounds that are in it. Um, and then it's also going to be prepping for a future mission uh, where we will actually, much like Osiris Rex, return samples from the Martian surface to the Earth. Right now, the only you know, samples of Mars we have are from meteorites that 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 hit us. Uh, we think are are from Mars. So, so this will be the first time to get a, a sample of of the dirt uh, from Mars. So, um, Perseverance, when it does land, it'll be looking for ancient signs of life, but also thinking ahead and collecting um, these little vials filled with with Mars dirt um that will be picked up later um by another rover and then shot back here to earth. So very exciting uh things ahead for the Mars Perseverance rover.
0: What exactly is it looking for? Is it water or is it something else?
4: It's looking for signs of life. So um so whether it be ancient water or, or ice or or um you know organic compounds that could be fossilized evidence or or evidence hidden in the surface that there was life there before. Um so that that's that's pretty much a, what it's looking for,
0: you did a story this year. you reported this year, Brendan, on um some of the microphones on board that rover. What has it heard so far?
4: Well, the one microphone that I'm extremely excited about is the microphone that is actually on the masthead of the vehicle, and that's what my reporting was earlier this year, and this microphone is going to listen to the pings that the laser makes. Uh, when it hits different rocks, um, and they will make a different sound depending on what they're made of. So the microphone is going to help with that laser. But there's also another microphone that is on the vehicle itself, and it's going to listen to the um, uh, entry and landing stage of uh, of the rover. And this is an engineering device uh, so that they can kind of hear what's happening and make you know, uh, future changes to future rovers, but they turned it on recently. We were able to actually hear the whirling of, of one of the systems, one of the cooling systems on the spacecraft as it was flying through, uh, space to Mars. So it was very interesting to hear what space sounds like. And then once they turn on that mast mic, um, it's going to be very interesting to hear what the actual surface of Mars sounds like. So very exciting stuff for us audio
0: broadcasters. It hasn't all been uh, kind of leaps and bounds in terms of exploration, though. There have been some setbacks, too. Um, tragic year for the space community in some ways with the news of the collapse of the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Uh, Emily Speck, uh, what do we know about what happened here?
3: Basically, you know, earlier this summer, we know that there was one of the supporting cables that collapsed on the Arecibo Observatory. And, you know, when you think of this observatory it's really famous. It's been in movies. It's, you know, you talk about golden eye and contact and this is the observatory you think of. And it's, it's the second largest in the world. It used to be the largest before China opened their um, telescope. But when that first cable collapsed, all the plans were set, you know, to fix, it was never, we're not going to fix this, you know, and UCF, which, which manages the observatory, you know, was very transparent about that. But then a second cable broke unexpectedly before they were able to safe the observatory or this telescope. And essentially, we heard, oh gosh, it was just a few weeks ago, that they were basically going to perform a controlled collapse of this giant telescope dish. But then it collapsed before that was able to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really devastating for a lot of reasons. It's devastating for the science community as a whole, but especially for Puerto Rico. This dish is is just part of their history. It's part of their culture. There's, you know, people, when they heard this happened, were very emotional about it for a lot of different reasons. It has a huge impact on education in Puerto Rico, but also internationally. You know, so many scientists that I spoke to either visited the observatory and it helped kind of play a role in them deciding to get into planetary science or Astronomy, and and so that it's it's a hard it was a hard pill to swallow definitely, and um, I know that there is some talk about hopefully rebuilding, but but none of that is is firmed up.
0: Uh, Brendan, there are still some thoughts about trying to rebuild this thing. What's the future of the observatory looking like?
4: Yeah, as, as Emily mentioned, there are calls for um, for Arecibo to be saved or or rebuilt. Um, the Arecibo Observatory is funded by the um, National Science Foundation, which is gets its money from Congress, right? Money's appointed from Congress for, for its operating budget. So there have been some calls from lawmakers to uh, continue funding Arecibo and to look into um, the future of it. The folks that I've talked to, you know, a rebuilding may not be uh, feasible. Um, this might be something like a brand new observatory. You know, it was almost 60 years old. Now is the time to kind of look at it and what new capabilities can we put in this massive, um, you know, dish crater that they have in in the jungles of Puerto Rico. So um, it it seems like if we are going to get something there, it will be a a brand new observatory. So the science community has to come together and figure out what its needs are, um, what hardware there is, um, and then Congress has to come back and find out how much money it's willing to to spend on this, um, a lot of folks are optimistic about a new administration coming in, um, and you know this is a chance to uh, for the for the Biden administration to show its its support for science by you know rallying behind this uh, and also show its support for Puerto Rico as well. It's it it could also be a political statement by this administration as well. So, folks who are supporting um, the Arecibo uh, Observatory are optimistic that something good will happen with a new administration coming in.
0: We've been speaking with Brendan Byrne. He is WMFE space reporter and the host of the radio show and podcast. Are we there yet, Brendan? Thank you so much for your time. Anytime. And we've also been joined by Emily Speck. She is the space reporter at Central Florida's CBS affiliate WKMG. She also hosts the podcast Space Curious. Emily, thank you as well.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Still to come, from a refurbished food truck to repurposed vending machines, Brianna Daniel gets creative in her quest to help the homeless. That conversation after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. A few years ago, Brianna Daniel got the idea of using a repurposed food truck to get toiletries and other items to the homeless. Now her nonprofit Street Team Movement, is using refurbished vending machines to distribute these products. Daniel says the three vending machines in Paramore, Sodo, and in Pine Hills are proving popular. 32 cards have been distributed for people to use at the machines. The items are free, but there's a limit on how many you can take per week. Brianna, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: So the last time I spoke to you was a couple of years ago and you were in the process of refurbishing an old food truck uh, to help, you know, with your nonprofit, help the folks on the street who are struggling a little bit. And you've now come out with something brand new. Uh, Just explain what you've got here in terms of these, I guess we could call them vending machines or that style of thing to help people who are on the streets.
5: Absolutely. Yeah, the last time we did talk was uh, we were just finishing up our renovations on our food truck. That we use to pass out hygiene items uh, to those that were experiencing homelessness in the woods um, and in further remote areas, and this is honestly just the next level to that. So uh, even when we were pat, we did the food truck in an attempt to reach more people and get more people the access to hygiene, and we just went along that same vein with the vending machine idea. We wanted to reach more people, um, but at a more convenient way. So we weren't having to Organize events and have people come to us on a certain day or a certain time, which may or may not be uh, convenient for them. This is something that you know our homeless friends can access on their own schedule um, and still get the products that they need.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how does it work?
5: Yeah, so it's a traditional vending machine. Um, we actually retrofitted it with a a pretty neat payment processing system that allows us to issue the homeless community cards, and we call them Hope Cards. And these Hope Cards allow our homeless friends to get two swipes out of the vending machine um, every week, and it automatically reloads. And we try to group items together in the machine. So, like, one swipe is in a toothpaste and one swipe is in a toothbrush. We try to do it in such a way where, you know, you get a dental kit, you get a razor um, or a shaving kit, which will come with, you know, uh, multiple items, um, so you're really getting your swipes worth.
0: And so what's the response been like? Did you kind of beta test it a little bit before you opened it up, or how did that whole process work?
5: So We actually started um, this project in January of 2019. Uh, we kind of came with the idea at really preliminary levels We kind of did some research. We wanted to know, you know, what sort of items can go in the machine as far as, like, just fitting. Um, But as far as, you know, what if we put a machine outside, you know, what sort of items can exist (laughs) in that machine. So we also went through and tested it on location in July of 2019. Mm -hmm. And we did that for about 60 days. We tested it at a small location in Paramore. We only gave access um, to about 30 or 40 of our homeless friends. For about three months, we wanted to see the response would be which items were popular. We asked, we spent a lot of time speaking to those that are going to be using this machine. We asked them, you know, these are the items that we want to put in the machine. You know, is there anything else that needs to go in? Like what could you really benefit from mm-hmm. um, that we might not even have thought of? So we, you know, we really worked with the homeless community to, you know, really make a product uh, that, that's for them. You know um, mm-hmm. that they're going to be using and and really really take care of it. So the response has been uh, very very warm, and that's putting it mildly. The homeless community really loves it. They they love the idea, and the community at large loves it. And they 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 seem to really gravitate towards the idea.
0: Mm-hmm. When you were talking to people and asking them you know, what things they would like to see in a vending machine, what what were the surprises? I guess, or were there some surprises? Like oh, I didn't think of that before.
5: Yeah, there's a couple of surprises. One were, uh two things off the top of my head. One was shoelaces. Uh, that was something that huh. you know people are like, yeah. A lot of people donate shoes, but oftentimes they take the shoelaces out of them. What? Wow. They, okay. they don't know why, but you know, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of shoe donations that our homeless friends end up getting without shoelaces. Uh, and the other thing is a can opener.
0: Hmm. Yeah, because when you're when you're maybe picking up a food parcel, there may be a lot of canned goods in it.
5: Exactly, and it doesn't have you know. <laughs> A can opener. Yeah. So those are the two items I know that are like, yeah, kind of shocking. Didn't think about it, um, but are pursuing putting those in the machines.
0: Mm-hmm. And then what? What about sort of keeping them stocked? And are you finding that you're having to restock some things more quickly than others?
5: Honestly, it's too early to tell. Um, even at the when we were doing the beta testing, you know, we kept the items fairly generic. So, you know, we know that a tooth, um, a dental kit would last, you know, a full month. Um, but things like hand sanitizer, masks, those are probably going to go fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a six-in-one laundry sheet that our friends can bring back in their Hope Cart to a laundromat and be able to wash clothes. We know that that's going to be very popular as well. Um, so there's some items that we anticipate Having to restock, um, as a whole, the machine, we don't anticipate having to restock it more than once a, once a month,
0: mm-hmm. each machine. If you're just joining me, my guest is Brianna Daniel. She is the executive director of the street team movement. We're talking about uh, a new project which has just rolled out, which is vetting vending machines stocked with hygiene items for folks who are homeless. Um, Brianna, are you retiring the truck or is that still going to be uh, kind of part of the, the suite of services that you provide?
5: we're going to repurpose the truck. So the truck is now going to be used um, as a vessel to stock the vending machines.
0: Thinking about this and sort of reflecting back on where you were when you started, like is this how you envisaged it rolling out? Because it's it's quite creative what you're doing.
5: <laughs> you know, no, I didn't. <laughs> if, if someone would have told me seven years ago that like, yeah, this is what you're going to be doing, I would have, you know, like that doesn't even make sense. But... Uh, ultimately, you know, the goal is to, to always look to improve. And this idea came right out of a board meeting where we asked ourselves, you know, what, what is it that we're doing? What are the issues with what we're doing? And we, we found that the issues with everything we were doing, when we were providing our laundry services, when we we're passing out remedial aid, it, it came up the same two issues. Mm-hmm. It's not convenient for everyone, and we're, which means we're not maximizing the reach. Right. Of people, So how can we make it more convenient and how can we reach more people? Um, so we, we were asking ourselves those two questions. And then we were looking at what items we had on hand to be able to meet these two things. And we realized that a lady gave us a vending machine and we never used it. So, you know, I, you know, I was like, all right, spitballing. What if we were to put some hygiene items in this machine? What would happen then? And, you know, the <laughs> as you could imagine, the board table got quiet and everyone was like, I like where you're going, but how would it work? <laughs> and we spent the better part of 2019 answering that question of how it's going to work. And mm-hmm. I think we got it now.
0: <laughs> it seems, uh, and I know that the timing is just kind of serendipitous too, right? But it seems like the ideal way to be helping folks now because of the requirements of social distancing and maybe you know, you, you might be a little reluctant to, to get out there and be, meet, be meeting people face-to-face because of the pandemic. Is How, how is that mm-hmm. working out as well?
5: I mean, honestly, <laughs> I couldn't have even – yeah, you're right. It's really serendipitous. I could have planned it any better uh, than this. You know, it was it was an, uh, a project that when we were going to initially put it out in January, we looked and we were like, man, I don't know how the community is even going to receive this you know, and that everything with the virus happened. And now it, it really makes sense. It makes sense to be able to, to socially distance people, to not create crowds, which is kind of the thing that we were doing. We actually lost. We didn't lose a lot of volunteers. A lot of volunteers, just they didn't want to leave their homes. They mm-hmm. didn't know what it was, you know, what it was like working with this population, especially during the pandemic, you know? Sure. So it, it really... It came right on time. The idea that we were nurturing and we were growing and we were working really hard on before we even knew coronavirus existed, you know, really just it made much, much, much more sense uh, the closer we got to launching it.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I I feel like we're at a moment of uh, change right now, too, as well. I mean, the pandemic has been very tough on the economy. A lot of people have lost jobs and maybe even more precariously housed than they were before. When you think about what 2021 looks like, do you sort of foresee some challenges there and maybe thinking that you might be serving even more people uh, next year than you were this year?
5: Yeah, we're already seeing a bit of a a demand, a bit of a need uh, already with the amount of calls that we're getting, with the amount of emails that we're always getting, um, people that are reaching out, you know, and and they see that, you know, we are a provider provider. Uh, of homeless services and sometimes they don't, you know, take the time to find out what that means. So we do have, you know, people that have called and have reached out to us, you know, Hey, I'm about to get evicted. Hey, my kids are, you know, I just lost my job. You do, what, what options do you have? You know, so mm-hmm. we, we, uh, in the summer, you know, we noticed a huge, just a massive influx of people that were genuinely scared. They were not yet homeless, but they knew that with their situation that they were going to be. Um, we had a lot of people calling that were already living out of their car. They left their um, apartments or their homes or whatever. They knew they couldn't make the payments. So they left, and they are actively living out of their cars. And, you know, these are the kind of stories that break our hearts. But and I just feel like, you know, I don't want to sound uh, – Pessimistic and saying that this is only the beginning, but we know that you know there there's a lot more where that came from, and we mm-hmm. want to be able to to help each of those people.
0: What might the next project be if it's not another vending machine? Do you have some ideas about how you might help a growing population of people who are struggling with poverty and potentially homelessness?
5: Yes, two things. Um, one, definitely expanding upon the vending machine idea. We do have five on hand. Um, so we do fully intend to put all five of those out. There's other communities, Tampa and Atlanta, that are actively working with us right now to get this program in their communities um, as they're experiencing a lot more people that are homeless and in need of services. Um, so, you know, we do have communities that are looking at what we're doing and wanting to bring this model to their community. Um, the other thing is a... Huh, a a solidified system of information because there's a lot of, uh, misinformation and a lot of uh, dated information that's out there. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start a, um, and it'll be more so like a, a web page or a one pager that will circulate that's going to have every single service you know, possible that we can get in contact with someone with their updated information, their updated services. And that's just going to be our way of reaching out to communities and making sure that, hey, maybe this isn't impacting you the way you think it is. But We want to get that information in the hands of the people that do need it.
0: Well, Brianna Daniel is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Street Team Movement. Thank you so much for your time.
5: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Matthew. I appreciate it.
0: Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find us online at wmf.e.org/intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.